Hello, this is Caleb, and welcome to the inaugural episode of The Right Stuff with special guest star, Ken Solvera. Yay, good to be back in the studio. Nice to see you again, Caleb. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. The song you just heard is the Bill Conti theme song from the film The Right Stuff. So, it's not just a clever name. If anything's remotely clever, clever I will rip it off. Okay, so... <laughs> This um, <clears throat> series is all about prized possessions, collectibles, cool stuff that we have. You go into someone's house, you can tell a lot about the person by the stuff they have, by what they have hanging, what they have on the shelves. Book collections, the uh, statues, art books, art pieces. Exactly, and, and for a geek like myself, someone who's kind of into pop culture and film and, and comic books and stuff... Um, we're all collectors to some degree. We'll all kind of have some stuff. My neighbor has bugs, crickets, and snakes. <laughs> hey, you know, it's whatever floats your boat, you know, so. Um, so, Tribal we're going to go through. The country she's traveled to. We're going to go through like like 11 or so items that, that Ken has in his collection, his marvelous collection. That is so cool. <laughs> so, we don't bury the lead on this one. We go straight for the Aladdin cell, framed, the one with the genie that has applause above it. Limited edition, 1992. All the stuff people have has a story behind it. And that's what we're interested in, the story behind the stuff. Ah, the story behind the stuff. So this is arguably your most prized possession, as far as an inanimate possession goes. <laughs> this, this particular piece is priced at... Over two grand. I mean, this, you can't get this stuff today. Well, it is... You, I know we this talked stuff a little is bit... Rare. We talked a little bit about your uh, your other blog, the movie that changed my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, it didn't change my life. My all-time favorite uh, animated film at the, before, before I got into films was Aladdin. Mm. Just uh, my... I understand that. Yeah. It, was, it was like, I loved Disney animation before that. I, um, I had... I remember the first time I went and saw something uh, that was, it was, I went to go see Black Hole, okay. but it was double featured with a re-release of Sleeping Beauty, and while the Black Hole was really cool, the effects and everything, it was the re-release of Sleeping Beauty that was a revelation to me. Uh, to see my, that theatrically for the first time on the on big, big screen, screen, that beauty, Maleficent, the dragon, the fire, the beautiful flowing imagery, it's, it's, you know... All my life, all I had was, you know, super friends. You know, yeah. not bad, but it, it's it's not like you had that full <laughs> No, it's bad. You drawing. can say it. <laughs> Scooby-Doo meets Batman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but to, to have the, the quality, yeah, you had, there was the filmation flow, stuff, the animation. And Hanna-Barbera stuff. Was and this was action. In the, in the early 70s, they didn't allow kids to watch action on TV because it would be harmful to us. So yeah. this is like the first time I got to see like the hero with the sword like throw it into the dragon and like God it's ah <laughs> and Maleficent was she's evil man someone someone just you know someone forgets to invite her to a christening and you know when you forget to invite someone it's always you know she always turns out to be an evil witch unfortunately <laughs> drops off the guest list it's true they take I just... it kind of hard and uh, curses the child to die I mean on her 16th birthday that's a tough break <laughs> that right so so uh, the other the other fairy modifies the spell so she'll only fall asleep but unfortunately to distribute it everybody else in the kingdom had to fall asleep too so 
It's... I just watched Pinocchio again, and the, there was definitely a different kind of code, a different kind of censorship back then, where you have cigars and half donkey, half boys, and it's oh, it's, it's so, yeah. so dark, and, and there's kind and of these... And they're gambling, and they're... And I didn't catch before, there's kind of these mysterious boogeyman creatures that are on the, the island that are kind of like the the workers of, of whatever's going on there. No, no, no. There, there are things that are back in the day that were, uh, even in my mind, I think it's unfortunate that they were culturally acceptable and today are not. And it's probably a good thing that we've adopted some yeah. some better sensitivities to... I mean, Disney, when did Disney take their big anti-smoking stance? Uh, or it's like nothing ever will, you know, they, they had their, uh, their Pan Am series on ABC, which was known for smoking the 60s, it's, you know, I, I know in the, and they had no smoking in it. I know in the 70s was when, 70s seemed to be when they really started clamping down on children's television. Although you can kind of go into the 50s where they, they overreacted with the, uh, uh, the witch hunts against uh, comic book creators who, you know, are you now or were you ever a member of the Communist Party? Yeah. I think that type of thing, Seduction of the Innocents, Charles Wortham's book, kind of got the American public thinking about all these things that we do that are that that are so mm -hmm. evil and bad to our kids. And it's not so much that, um, you know, if you're looking at Pinocchio and it's, you know, the kids that are smoking and gambling, well, they're supposed to be bad influences. I'm sort yeah. of okay with the bad guys doing bad things because they're bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking more of, you know, sometimes there's some some cultural insensitivities that were going on. Uh, like Song of the South? <laughs> <laughs> it, not, not, not Song of the South exactly, but, but some of my kids would bring up some old stuff. Mm -hmm. And you could see some, some, some racial caricatures in some of the drawings of things. Like even yeah. Little Nemo, I was, I was iffy about some of the character designs in that comic book. Even though mm -hmm. it's still revered as a classic, I went, this could be taken the wrong way. And uh, I think that's... it's difficult to sort of get around. Yeah, I, I talked with uh, this guy, Michael Mallory, who um, was on the commentary for one of the, the Tom and Jerry releases, like the Blu-ray, and they kind of have this disclaimer about, like, we're leaving it unedited, how it appeared, and some of the stuff might be not politically correct now. Yeah, no, and, and very... I mean, they, they, they... It has historical significance to leave it as it was, because that's... And they, of course, made all sorts of fun of people's accents. Yeah. Back then. I mean, every other joke was, was some, you know, what country are you from? We're going to poke fun at your accent kind of a thing. It's funny. Remember all those Flintstone Winston smoking ads? Oh. <laughs> you know? you Thank watch... you, YouTube. We can find exactly. them now. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that blew my mind. That was so funny. <laughs> so Aladdin but, is, we know from Waking Sleeping Beauty, is is a part of the the, the Disney so, Renaissance, right? Right. So so I went through. So so Sleeping Beauty was the one that really turned me on to to the beauty and the gorgeousness of what what animation could be. Aladdin. Um, oh well, and while I was like Great Mouse Detective, was the first one where I really thought uh, animation told an interesting, intricate mystery story. Like it yeah. wasn't just a beginning, middle, end that you could see coming a mile away. There were plot twists and turns, and 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 that was great. And Aladdin was probably the first one where they actually had a male protagonist. Think about it. Most of these mm. Disney films, I mean, Pinocchio and Bambi, I guess technically are guys, but you know, yeah. it's mostly princesses. Even Basil were introduced to through the girl who who comes to him. Right. Well, and Basil's yeah. a male mouse, but this is the first time we had a human, a human being, male. sure, person who's a boy 
who is the protagonist of the story. Yeah. And uh, and uh, being so, they they definitely skewed the story more like Raiders of the Lost Ark than mm-hmm. like a, a fairy tale, you know, princess story. And it totally worked for me. I just I I, yeah. I was kind of floored. It was different than any other Disney movie. I I had it's, but it was like the first film where you just could not tell what was going to happen next at all. Yeah. And, and they fused the comedy of the genie with the action adventure of Raiders with the carpet ride and the escaping the tunnels and the sequences. And, and you actually had a, a pretty nice, compelling, like, like guy as the lead. But not only that, uh, I, I always describe Aladdin as one of my favorites because it's one of the few movies where every character in the movie has an objective. Like, yeah, everybody sure. actually wants to get something accomplished. Uh, the sultan wants to marry his daughter off. The daughter wants to marry for love, and she doesn't want to be a kept princess. Aladdin wants to be um, more than a street rat. You know, he, he aspires to be to be a king and a prince. Um, Abu just wants to to get food. Uh, the genie wants to be freed from his lamp. Jafar wants to to take over take over the world, become the most powerful sorcerer on the planet, and all and and the lamp. The lamp is the object of mm-hmm. everybody's like. Yeah, that what makes it happen. We'll solve that for everybody. The object of supreme power. And everybody's everybody's uh, desires come together and collide in that movie. Like yeah. nothing would happen if they didn't all want these different things and all their, their things and how their stories interact with each other drives the action of the movie. Which is great for plot, great for narrative. And yeah, it just, the story is something happening to someone. Always. Right. I, I think you can look at Aladdin and just move so much faster than almost any yeah. other Disney movie. Let's talk a little backstory. It, it threw some people off when it first came out. They're like, wow, this isn't like the other Disney fairy tale movies. But that's okay, because I think it's, um, it was really trying to be something more fun and more exciting and more adventurous. And uh, I, I think it worked, because it's, it's definitely up there in the, the upper echelons, I think, in most people's you know, top Disney movies. I've, I heard a good quote once, and I, th- I think you'll like this. If, if uh, John Musker and Ron Clements kicked off the Disney renaissance with The Little Mermaid, The Little Mermaid showed what the renaissance could do, and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin did it. Yeah, that would be... You know. Although, personally, I think the Renaissance, the beginning of the Renaissance actually happened with Great Mouse Detective, which Ron Clements and John Musk <clears throat> also did, but that was the first one that uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was on board with to, yeah. um, to be there to help with story. Yeah. And they went, and one of the things that Ron and John will always say that, that, that Jeffrey was great at helping the artists do is you have all these great artists, they all come together, they all have ideas, they're all pitching things in storyboards, they all, and, and there's this moment in every production where the story threatens to explode, where all the, mm-hmm. the, the ideas and all these great ideas and things that everyone's throwing out there kind of starts going in a bunch of different directions. And every movie has this moment where you have to like stop and pull everything back and cut out everything that's not serving the story. But then you have to focus on what is the story. And Aladdin had one of those moments. Aladdin actually had a moment mm-hmm. that was... Where um, Jeffrey came in and he was watching and it was you know awkwardly paced. It wasn't working. He said, "All right, change this. Pull these here. Rework these things. You know, alter these." So everyone worked like overtime for like a week and a half, two weeks to get this ready before before winter break. To I I I, I misremember the exact time and circumstances, but I know when they rearranged all the sequences, 
sat down, dropped the lights, showed everything on the projector, you know, and did the the, the scratch version, this the work print version of the movie, well, not work print, but the you know the scratch version of the movie in storyboard form for Jeffrey when they raised the lights in the theater. Jeffrey's sitting there, nods his head and says, "You can keep the title." <laughs> Of Aladdin, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and they called they call that Black Monday. I, I think he he, he was kind of speechless. He had no like criticisms because it was uh-huh, so. Uh huh. You can keep the title. <laughs> what I heard he said. <laughs> and 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 that's and someone and this was at Comic Con. So someone asked Ron and John about whether that was true, and then they came up with this thing that every movie has this point, where there's so many great ideas and so many different things coming in. And you've got too much stuff, and it's all threatening to just blow up mm, and take the movie sure. in too many different directions, and then it kind of becomes a jumbled mess. And it's the director's job to to unfortunately throw out the good stuff, but make yeah. sure everything that's left serves the story. That what you're doing serves the story to everybody, even if you're a, an awesome animator and you're putting these little character bits and traits into your character. Is that what the character is supposed to be doing at that point in the story? Does that little that little playful twerk does that does that give you something that um, tells you something about the character? And is that important for the story to tell you that about the character at that moment? Um, a, a good bit of how animators help tell a story is in Incredibles when when Mrs. Incredible is is warming up, you know, is just going back in the action for the first time in years, and she gets on the island, and she's trying to hop on the monorail to, to catch her right into the secret hideout, and she's a little rusty, and she's trying to think, trying to time her grab, and she kind of, she, she kind of gives this nervous gesture with her head, and she kind of bounces her body a little bit to warm it up, and you can see she's she's got some tension in her body, because she's not sure she can still do this, and that all happens with animation. That all happened because the yeah. animator... Is an actor with pencils, or is an actor with pencil pixels, but the animators infuse the characters with acting. Hmm. Yeah. So, so Beauty and the Beast had a different creative team, but Aladdin was Ron and John strike back in in a big bad way, and they did it like you say with a male protagonist. Mm -hmm. You know. And then, um, and and then I guess uh, Lion King kind of followed suit with the male protagonist. I use that it's like Hamlet. Hamlet told in the animal kingdom. <laughs> Hamlet in Africa. Uh, so this cell was... Um, yes, tell me about this beautiful cell uh, here. This is gorgeous. So Dis- Disney, France. the ink and paint department at Disney was wondering if they were going to have a job when Disney moved all their, their inking and painting over to digital. Mm-hmm. They created a system called CAPS, Computer Animation Painting System. Okay. And Little Mermaid was the last Disney movie to be actually painted by hand on acetate cell. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, and much like, and by the way, Sleeping Beauty was was the the other one that was also the gateway. Sleeping Beauty was the last Disney movie to be inked by hand. After that, mm. they used the xerographic camera process, which I won't go into now because you really have to see it and it wouldn't make a lot of sense, but it does involve actually photographing the pencil art, putting it onto metal plates, and then washing ink toner over it, and then fusing the toner sticks to the plate where the art was, and then you lift the toner off the plate onto the acetate and fuse it with the chemical. So it's, it speeds up the inking process, but it is more like a xerographic prot machine. Of iWorks helped hmm. develop it uh, with at the Disney Studio. When he saw the process they were using at the hospital that was across the street from the studio, and they thought, "Hey, we can adapt this." 
Mm. They were kind of using it for x-rays or some sort of... Uh, so in, in 1992... Anyway, anyway, so Sleeping, yeah. Sleeping Beauty was was mostly hand-inked, but the last, but there were a few scenes that were they tested using the xerographic process. Hmm. Little Mermaid was mostly all hand-painted, hand except for the final scene with the wedding ship going okay. away in the distance, and the father... Triton takes his, his trident, and Triton, King Triton, takes his trident, wipes it across the sky, creates that beautiful rainbow. That was all painted digitally. Okay. The rainbow is all digital. The, the, the ship is all digital. So it was like this was going to be the last movie they did bef you know, in traditional style before they switched over to computer painting. And because okay. they didn't want the first Disney movie to be all computer painted to be, you know, like... A, a fairy tale classic because it had like those wonderful warm tones and airbrushes and people had come to expect like a higher level, mm -hmm. maybe maybe a, a more classic artistic sense to those. The first movie to be totally done in computer animation painting was Beauty and the Beast. Nope, Little Mermaid. People forget there's a movie between Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. There is. Yes. <laughs> Rescue is down under. Yes, that's ah. it. <laughs> And it's got that beautiful sequence in the beginning with the boy and the eagle, and the eagle swoops down. That was released really theatrically? Yeah. Yes, that oh. was released Because <laughs> when you think of the Disney Renaissance, <laughs> they don't talk about that one much. <laughs> it's, it's a good film. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's light. It it's a, a light film. It wasn't a Ron and John, right? No. Who's no. behind that? Tom Schumacher, actually, who became president of Feature Animation. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. So question, so it's it's nineteen ninety two, you're not working at Disney yet. Right. Not yet. Okay. So so how do I'm how close. do you uh, close. you're close <laughs> to it. I didn't know you, I was after I was, you saw Aladdin, you North... you did want to work at Disney. You're like, I gotta be there now. Now that Aladdin's come out, it's captured my imagination. I my my all my college roommates friends were just like yeah, you know, they would just buy me all this Aladdin stuff because I was such an Aladdin geek. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> You yeah, try no. to get a pet monkey, it didn't work out. <laughs> I just thought it was perfect. It was like, like we've talked about perfect movies, like Back to the Future and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Aladdin's up there with me, with them. Absolutely. Perfect. Like just everything. It's got romance, it's got action, it's got intrigue, it's got a good story. It kept me on the edge of my seat. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. And honestly, that last moment where, the, where, where it comes down to Aladdin's going to be a prince or he's going to free the genie and, you know, it's it's... It's, I'm not going to call it heartbreaking, but it's it's touching when he actually lets him yeah. go. It, it's, it's the perfect... Did I, just, did I just ruin that for everyone? Sorry, don't listen. Just wipe that last I sentence. I think everyone has seen that. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's the perfect balance of the genie being the supporting character. So because of that, you can let Robin Williams go wild and be energetic and, and do his, his improv and, and all his comedy and then animate around it later. And it works for the story. And it gave them their big song and dance numbers. They didn't, you know, they just, hey, well, what are we going to do in this cave? There's no big creatures to stage a big dance number. Oh, he's a genie. He can just replicate himself all over. <laughs> yeah, it's Howard Shore, right? Um, uh, 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck. <laughs> uh. So, 
How do you get your hands on this? And I, I love you too. I, I love that gig where he, where he says, I, I bet you can't fly us out of here. Oh, yeah, Mr. Doubting Mustafa, watch this. He flies him out. Ah, oh, that was great, Jeannie. Now for my three wishes. Uh-huh. Dust my ears to see me. You are down by one. Uh-uh-uh. I didn't actually wish us out of the cave. <laughs> He's like, ah, bah. All right. You got me, but no more freebies. And that just described the relationship great because... The, you know, the genie is the all-powerful mystic, you know, stuck in a little teeny box, I do whatever it says. And Aladdin's the trickster. Aladdin's the mm-hmm. street rat, lived by the seat of his pants. And that's the, other, that's the other thing I love about Aladdin, more than anything else, is that they do not cheat on the ending. Mm-hmm. They do not just suddenly make the hero suddenly, like, great at sword fighting, where we've never seen him sword fight before, and he beats the, the ultimate fighter, like, in yeah. something. It's, he has to outsmart him. He has to outsmart him. And when he says, you know, when he just cheeses Jafar and says, you're not the most powerful. The genie's the most powerful. In order to be the most powerful, you'd have to be a genie. It's like, it's like Al, what are you doing? Keep me out of this. I'm sorry, don't listen to the boy. He said, one, too many snake hits to the head. You know, and you just think, oh, he's nuts. He's just giving Jafar more power. But we know as an audience, and Aladdin knows, that with all that great power comes... Great responsibility. Itty bitty living space. <laughs> and, and, he, and they set that up. The movie set that up for us. They set that up for us using the genie's wants. That, that Aladdin now understands mm-hmm. the way to trap Jafar is to play to his ego, play to his pride, and give him, you know, there's no way to defeat him at this point. So you get J- Jafar to defeat himself. Mm. I mean, it's just a brilliant moment. And the genie doesn't save the day. It's, a, it's Aladdin and his wits and his quick thinking that saves the day. Which is a power we knew he had. Plus Jasmine is hot. So that's important. <laughs> okay, so... Even even Jasmine is, is really cool and spunky and, and has her own story arc and sees right through him. You're that boy from the market. Did you think I wouldn't recognize you? <laughs> you know, she's not like... <laughs> Well, you know, um, royalty. This, this isn't a commentary track here. Royalty, you know, royalty disguising themselves as a commoner. Who'd believe that? She goes, oh, not that. You know, even that little interchange. Okay. At any rate. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I could. Uh, we could spend this whole blog talking about. <laughs> you're Aladdin. very passionate about Aladdin. So, how did you get your hands on this piece? Uh, bittersweetly, um, when they when uh, Disney started going, started moving towards 3D animation and kind of doing away with the classics. The, the department I worked at, Ink and Paint, um, used to create physical cells that mm-hmm. they painted and they sold as art pieces. So since you can't really do that with 3D movies after they kind of stopped making the traditional 2D animated films and uh, they, they had stopped doing... We would recreate these, like this cell from Aladdin. Mm-hmm. There were no cells in Aladdin. There were no hand-painted cells. We didn't, there, there was hand-drawn art, though. So we would take the actual art from the movie that was hand-drawn by okay. the actual artist that was used in the film, and we would recreate those, those cells using traditional ink and paint methods. Okay. So the cell is as authentic as it would have been as if we had shot, you know, hand-painted and hand-inked the art for Aladdin and done it as, as, a, as a traditionally animated film rather than scanning the pencils in and then inking and painting on the computer. So um, when they when the program kind of kind of died down after they stopped making two D films because hand inking and hand painting Toy Story wasn't like selling as well as an art piece. They I mean they would do different okay. things with them, but uh, they uh, they cut a lot of people out of my department. Um, 
uh, including me. And but they gave us they gave us all a going away gift, and my gift was this cell. This was your layoff gift. Yes. Wow. I mean, beats a Rolex at least. I don't know. So yes, this Still was not a bad constellation price. And and the cell isn't supposed to exist. There are only supposed to be a limited number of them, and they're all individually yeah. numbered. You may notice mine is not numbered. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so no one's supposed to know this even exists. I probably shouldn't even talk about it. Say <laughs> <laughs> a, a Disney employee exclusive right here. Disney employee exclusive. Okay, okay. super secret. Uh, but uh, but I promised them I would never sell it, be, so I wouldn't water down the market or flood it. So it's it is a very personal piece. Yeah, and that's that's a keeper for sure. Speaking of our next item on the list. Ah, this cool uh, sort of young adulty poster. Not the typical poster you see for Aladdin. No, the um, this, this is a cool. You got Aladdin, Jasmine on the flying carpet over the clouds. Beautiful sunrise or sunset happening in the background. Look in the stars, by the way. Genie's head is kind of this constellation, and the stars there kind of looking at them. Yep, and they're kind of in a surfing pose on the magic yeah, carpet. So you have this this framed poster of this, which is really cool. So in um, in a yeah, I was gonna say. Hopefully, this is a happier story. Yes, yes, this this is kind of a happier story. Um, Disney had uh, my dog died, and I got this cheer me up. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I, I didn't. I was kind of focusing on the movie and the experience rather than how I got that cell. <laughs> the uh, this poster. When Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast came out, Disney released two different poster campaigns. Okay. One was, and you've probably seen it. One would kind of be like, imagine a world beneath the ocean, or imagine if there was something out there that you wanted to be. Um, or a, a tale as old as time, and these were all kind of like backlit with the silhouettes of the Isn't character. Isn't her sitting on a rock? Right. Yeah. Her sitting on, the other the one is, is Beauty, Belle, and the Beast kind of in their dancing pose, and there's kind of like a yellow yeah. light around them. So that was more like the adult. We're going to capture people's imaginations and romance. Mm -hmm. And then they come out with a little kid's poster, which is pretty much filled with all the characters and yeah. big bright colors, and it was like the main characters in the front, and they were surrounded by everybody. Yeah. With Beauty and the Beast, it's one where she's kind of dancing with the... the uh, She's holding her hand out with, with the teapot and the kettle, and the beast mm. is kind of up in the clouds. Okay. And with Little Mermaid, she's on the rock with Eric and Triton and, and Medusa. And, and is it... Okay. Uh, I remember the beast not and the Medusa, beast but... Uh, Ursula? Ursula are, are kind of up in the sky behind them, kind of fighting. And so, for, so they had, like, the adult, and they had, like, the kids. Yeah. Now, one of the things Disney will always admit they were sort of missing was how to appeal to the teenagers. And I remember when mm. Little Mermaid came out, I was working with a junior high group, and we were doing like a we we would do these all night party kind of things, lock in, mm -hmm. where we take them ice skating and then bowling and then to a movie theater and then in a bit at, at one o'clock in the morning and then back to the the, the church okay. or, or then back to the church <laughs> where we'd make like a pancake, we'd do games and like make pancake breakfast for everyone. It was great. You haven't lived till you stayed up all night with like about a hundred, you know, like junior hires. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Mountain Dew. But they absolutely like well, all the guys were like, "Oh, Little Mermaid, why are we going to go see this?" La. Yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> Especially at that age. Yeah. And then, like, at 20 minutes in the movie, when they get to the, the I want to be part of your world song, the guys are like, yeah, their mouths are just <laughs> dropping over. They're like, I wish she was real. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. just, I mean, they just got it. They got like, the, ah, uh, ah. you know, the adventure and the romance and kind of like the, the art. And they, they got it, you yeah. know, and it was. But Disney's biggest problem was how do you convince these, you know, that, that age group that animation isn't just for kids? Because yeah. at that age, you really don't, you know, you, you kind of don't want to yeah. be a kid anymore. And, and Jasmine in a tube top is a part of that answer. <laughs> so, so Aladdin had, they, they were going to, with Aladdin, they were going to experiment with what they called a, a poster that was more aimed to the teen market. Okay. And while this poster got released in Europe, for whatever reason, they, um, I don't know why, I, there's, you know, ask me all sorts of questions about, about marketing and why they make the decisions they make, and I'll give you the same answer. I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this poster never got released here in the United States. Uh, but I know, but it was, but I was up at Disney Consumer Products and saw the original of this, oh, the original. So where did it get released then? The original print of this, and and one of the guys I was I was working with because we, my department did a lot of consumer products arts. He said, "Yes, I know that, and I know the guy who painted that, Ron Diaz." And I said, "Oh, we work with him too. He does a lot of our work." And so the next time I was over at Ron's place, I asked him about the poster. He said, "Yeah, I've got a copy. Do you want it?" Wow. Yeah, that's sweet. Do you so know? That, was it ever released in Europe or anywhere? Um, I, he, I believe he said it was used in the European marketing campaign okay. for, for Aladdin. So I actually got a copy of that poster yeah, some, from, some of the the best guy, posters from the guy who that. painted it. Nice. So, That's yeah. sweet. That was, that was the story behind that poster, and I love that poster. Yeah. To me, again, this is like the perfect... This poster sums everything up about the movie that's just so great. You've got the, the main characters. You've got the sense of adventure mm -hmm. and action, but it's romantic. You've got the genie, but he's subtle. It's not exploding out. It's well-balanced. It's a little minimalist, but I sort of like it that way, too. Yeah, the, the, the genie casts a big shadow. So mm -hmm. it's, it's when you have both of them in, in the frame, the attention is kind of on the genie. So to have a Latin front and the center like that. And most of my movie really posters cool that thing. I have, they have to work on two levels. One, they actually have to be a movie I really cared about and like mm -hmm. and love. But the poster itself needs to also work as art. Yeah. And this, and I love I the color that. balance in this. The, the, the orange and the red just kind of like pulls your eye in. And you can even see, even their clothing... Kind of, they have the the white, um, the, the more white bottoms that are up against the brighter part of the sky. But when it yeah. goes up into their darker, the the rest of them is up against the darker tone, and they pop out more against the night sky, it, the clouds and the sunlight. I just, I just think there's yeah. so much stuff about he, this. He's totally surfing a thousand yeah. years before surfing. He's true. totally surfing a he, thousand. He, he years. invented surfing. <laughs> Yeah, and he's you, balancing on it. Yeah, you totally even get Jasmine's look about. Oh, I kind of like this guy, but I'm kind of keeping my eye on him too. Yeah, he's, he's kind of out there. He's kind of wild, but oh. he's he's searching for himself. And it's uh, it's a gorgeous piece. It yeah, really is cool and great for teenagers and for those who are forever teenagers. <laughs> Speaking of poster town, we now move to this uh, little gem here. And the same thing. Look From at the, the colors uh, in that. The Look 1986 at... film, Big Trouble in Little China. Got Kurt Russell, got uh, Big Trouble, a movie I absolutely love. And it's one of those movies I love that nobody, that a lot of people either get or you don't. Most mm -hmm. people don't. I mean, but it does have its d dedicated fan base. 
Yeah, it, yeah. it has become a cult classic. It has risen to that status. Yeah, John Carpenter. John Carpenter. Most people don't know this, but the guy who uh, wrote and directed Buckaroo Bonsai did kind of a polish on the dialogue. Oh, really? Which is okay. one of the reasons why this movie has that kind of like snappy pace, like you blink and you miss. Kind of like there's some great interchanges in it. And you don't expect them. You just don't expect that kind of like really intelligent, rapid-fire dialogue in the middle of yeah. of like a, 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 a you know a throwback B movie karate action yeah. flick. And you got kind of the San Francisco or Kung bridge Fu, in Kung there. Kung Fu action flick. Sorry, you got the San Francisco bridge, which you know you kind of grew up near, so that's probably cool. Yep. No, no, it's great that it's near San Francisco. And again, I love the Drew Struzan. He always captures the likenesses. He always balances all these elements so well in his posters. Yeah, he's, he's a master. You remember him from Star Wars so and good. Raiders of the Lost. He didn't do the original Raiders of the Lost Ark poster, but he did do the re-release that had Indy with oh, the whip okay. and all the characters around him. Kind of similar to, to this. He just loved Jack Burton, man. He's such a... And, and isn't the, uh, the best character in Kung Fu Panda in this movie? Yes, he is. The dad. Yeah, Poe's father, the goose. Oh, my son. He had the little dream. He had the little dream. That guy has, has the best voice, I swear. And he was in Blade Runner. Nothing can get you out of like a depression like hearing that guy It's so funny because he played like such a character. The, the agent. He's such a decrepit, evil villain in this, too. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's absolutely the polar opposite of Poe's father. <laughs> he is. I mean, the guy is creepy. Mm. <laughs> we have an early. Not to Kim, Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall, but a pre Sex in the City Kim Cattrall in here. Being uh, very cool. And her best romantic scene ever when, at the end of the movie. Aren't you even going to kiss her goodbye? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just... <laughs> wait. She's like, wait, there's something I want to tell you. Right, there's, you're wanting to apologize. there's something wrong with your face. I know. There's something wrong with your face. <laughs> it's a great film. So, so how did you get your hands on this poster? First of all, did you see this in 86? I did. When it came out? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I so was you're kind of a fan of this is of this even is, the, the Russell Carter partnership and kind of following. This them. is one of those things where it pays to be working at a movie theater. Okay, <laughs> so I, I got it. I have a I, few of those. Yes, yes. So now, so now you know the story behind how I got my hands on this poster. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah it was you got to be extra nice to management. That's the secret there. Extra like, nice hey. to management. I, I, it's one of the it's one of those yeah. few things I will never forgive. My I I actually had a, a backlit, like giant poster from Back to the Future two. Oh nice! And, and when I went to went away to college, my mom threw it away. Oh really? I was like, no. no. <laughs> that would have been cool. So these guys teamed up with a couple of movies, right? From Escape from New York to the Thing. Was there any? Were there other ones? As far as Carpenter, Russell. Oh, um. Oh, they did Elvis. Elvis? On TV. John Carpenter directed Elvis. Nice. And uh, Kurt Russell played Elvis. I believe that yeah. was Carpenter directed that. But just. Yes. Oh, and of course, Escape from L.A. Escape from L.A., yeah. So it's great. You look at kind of those those movies, and they, they're they so different. Yet they have the commonalities of his humor and his style. and... And stuff like that. So, speaking of Drew Struzan, okay, 
you had these bad boys hanging up for quite a while. Yeah. It's the 1997, the special edition theatrical releases of the original Star Wars trilogy. All redone by Drew Struzan. Great work. Yep. Yep, they are... Don't be at a loss for words now. No, I was just thinking an ultimate frisbee game. But yeah. <laughs> so I, I like these three posters because as a collector, you have the whole set. You have all three. And displayed next to each other, it's just a great image. And it's great artwork. It is. He balances color across each one. Green for Jedi, blue for Empire, mm -hmm. red for, for Star Wars. And the um, and you've got all the main characters, and you've got that artistic painterly representation of them. And yeah. this is the last time that would happen. After this, it all turned into high def photography. Yeah, kind so of it's kind of the end of an era. The end of the era. But I really like the fact because it works as a as a a, a single art piece. Mm -hmm. People, movie posters used to actually be considered art, right? They were yeah. abstract representations of things that were going on. That's something I really loved about Skyfall. The opening title credits were abstract representations of every other scene in the movie. If you looked at the credits, hmm. you could almost see a preview of how the rest of the movie was going to go. Yeah, that's a good point. I love the shadow work in Jedi. Yeah, it's it actually really cool. makes Jedi look cool. And I also... <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> like, I guess I need the third one to complete the set. I mean, I guess. The collector in me is a completist. But like, and Je well, and I and to be honest, I really, really enjoyed the re-release of Jedi. The changes they made to it made the mm -hmm. biggest difference in the movie. And and they there was some stuff with the puppets that got cleaned up and looks a lot better. And the ending, the ending, you know, the the original ending in Jedi was this this kind of happy-go-lucky Ewok parade song, mm -hmm. which seemed. You know, and and now the new you know John Williams actually recorded a new score for the ending, and it's much more thoughtful and contemplative, and ethereal, and it's Luke looking burning the body of Vader's body, and then seeing their ghost kind of you know knowing he's released his father and he's gone into the Force, mm -hmm. and and the and then the movie turns more into about Luke's journey. Mm -hmm. And that, that hero's journey from wide-eyed kid looking forward to war to I've buried my father, you know, yeah. kind of a thing. And and the, to me, it's though it's a much more somber tone to the ending, it's a much more powerful one. Mm. I felt like now I was watching Luke's journey rather than watching the teddy bear movie. Yeah, that's that's a good way and, to, to say it. And... And I love, um, and I always, always thought, and I even thought that the first time I saw it, man, if they just could have ended with Luke burning Vader's body, I would have been happier with that film. Mm -hmm. The music goes, goes a long way towards sort of fixing the tone of the ending, in my mind. The, the answer to this next question will indicate how you felt about these films individually. Where did you see the re-releases? <laughs> so for A New Hope, I actually drove up to Northern California to see it at the original theater I saw A New Hope in when it came out the first time nice. with Rick and Peter up at Century 22 Big Screen, which, uh, was, Marin County? which was the largest screen in California. Lucas used to actually do all of his preview screenings there. And I always tell people this. I actually saw a preview screening of, of A New Hope 
and because I saw the original scene with uh, Jabba the Hutt before he was a puppet. With yeah, British with, Java, with, yeah. With British Java. And then when the movie came out, I'm like, where's that scene where Han Solo is surrounded by all the gangsters in the uh, thing? You know, as a kid, and all my rest of my friends are going, what, You're are you crazy? crazy? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, vindicated the, the years later. The re-release vindicated me. I'm not crazy. It did exist. Um, and uh, that's actually well, where Well, didn't we, slightly different versions air on cable, too? Or am I crazy? I'm not sure about that. I might have... I mean, they also had that scene in the comic book adaptation as well. Okay. And that might have been where I saw it. But but I do know that that's where Lucas... Because that's where... Um, and then when Spielberg found those screens, that's where he started doing his stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's why we saw the Back to the Future 3 uh, preview screening at, which was awesome. That's a significant theater to... Empire? And... Uh, and uh, Frank Marshall was, was there for the one-year anniversary of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And mm -hmm. So for, for Empire, I went down to the Cinerama Dome and saw it here in... You know, I was living here in L.A., so I went and saw it in the big screen. And Very nice. Cinerama. And for Jedi, Legendary I saw the, the, the Agura Hills, the Man <laughs> 6 in <and> Agura <laughs> Hills. <laughs> My hometown. <laughs> Maybe it was the Jans. I think I might Did we go to the Jans? <laughs> the Man Jans. <laughs> the Man Jans. So, probably what it deserves. <laughs> I saw a matinee, and I actually yeah. hopped to it. <laughs> actually, yeah. I paid for something else. <laughs> I think it was the Man Jans. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're, le we're leaving Poster Town for a different kind of artwork. <laughs> you have this really cool Hercules blanket from 1997. Well, I had. <laughs> <laughs> you could get it back. It, it's been loaned out. <laughs> um, now, were you working at Disney at this point in '97? Yep. Yep. You were here for this all throughout. Kind of Hercules. You were there for that. So everybody who worked on Hercules got one of these. Is a cast, it was a cast and crew rap party gift. That's I mean yeah. So that one, these very are rare. Cool. These are these are cool. Yeah, you can't just get these anywhere. It's folks. a tapestry. <laughs> yeah, like in Greek, said tapestry. Oh, tapestries. See, there you so go. There's a theme. Yeah, and it's it's a blanket that you could hang up as art. Yep. As well, if you wanted. Definitely so. could. Very cool. Oh, here's 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 something most people don't know. John Musker men mentioned this in his blog. I'd forgotten about this. Hmm. But you know how most of the Disney caricatures, you know, the characters tend to be a caricature of the actor portraying them a little bit. Okay. You can kind of see that in them. Sure. Um, so you know, James Woods did uh, did Hades. Hades, okay. And you can kind of see the nose, hmm. but look at like the forehead and the chin and. James Wood is insulted on so many levels right now. <laughs> no, no, it's it's because he wasn't the original actor portraying. Oh, okay. It. Uh, oh, they had so a, di they had a different, different actor, <laughs> close, closer. Yeah, you can see that it's. Um, uh, I believe it was uh, John Lithgow. Oh, okay. You can kind of kind of see that in see Hades that. design a little bit. Cool. <clears throat> so, is this the the first Disney film you kind of worked on when when you were there? Uh, I was. Tarzan? I actually I managed to be there for the rap party for Lion King. Okay, so you're kind of. So, so this was kind well, of. What was the one after Lion King? Uh, it went Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, okay. Tarzan, Mulan. Uh, what was after? 
after Mulan. Did, did I think you get it was um, Lilo and Stitch and Atlantis and Treasure Planet and then Home on the Range. Did you get uh, rap gifts for? Oh no, Brother those? Bear and then Home on the Range. Did you get rap gifts for all those? Oh, and Emperor's New Groove is there for that too. Right. Uh, yes. However, you could you could tell as the movies kind of made less money, our rap gifts went from giant tapestries to the McDonald's <laughs> toys, <laughs> the Happy Meal toys. <laughs> yeah, the budgets kind of got uh, trimmed. Kind of what was the um, the Pocahontas rap gift? I mean, we actually we got all those all those art books. We used to oh, get yeah. one for every movie. And for Pocahontas, we had these... One of the art books. Gorgeous. Uh, what was the big rap gift for, for, for Pocahontas? It's not important. No, it's it's okay. The, but this Dude, Hercules I think, I think blanket we, think, is really cool. I think we all got a canoe. I think we all got canoes. You got a that. canoe? Yes. Really? <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I guess that's a little harder to hang on to and, <laughs> yeah. and put on your wall. <laughs> Great. Now I have to haul around this canoe. <laughs> okay. And was uh, so this was a John and Ron collaboration. Mm-hmm. So they were that's that's very Their cool. Wacky sense of humor. You can see you can see the the yeah. they tend to be the humor guys, the the go to comedy duo. <laughs> you can see One the, my favorite the is, is energy the, level in this was you know, you the know. the Greek gospel chorus narrating the whole story. I think it was a, a wonderful gimmick that they used. Nice, glad that you liked that. Yeah, Anthony, Anthony really loved that. I was a little concerned how they were gonna like throw like gospel singers yeah. into this, but well, unlike you know like Arabian Nights, like we had to read you know Greek literature in high school and we were more familiar with it, and so nuances like that. There was always a Greek chorus narrating the story that would pop in so often, whether it was um, like Gilgamesh or Oedipus. Right, right, or uh, you know those kinds of things. It's it's kind of an mm-hmm. unsung movie. I got it's 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 unfortunate. Hercules was kind of the tipping point where where Disney films were going up, 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 and then Hunchback and Hercules were like the two where like it, it where they did well, but they didn't do as well as the previous films. Well, it's, done. it's a hard act to follow once he, <laughs> once you hit Lion King. It's hard to yeah, that's hard to top three hundred million domestic exactly, and, and you're you're pretty much putting these out every year, or every two years. Um, I felt like there was you know I felt like Pocahontas was just a more difficult sell because it's it dealt with more mature emotions. Mm-hmm. It's still sure. a great movie, but it's not going to be quite as kid friendly. Certainly, Hunchback wasn't. Um, a beautiful, beautiful film, though. I yeah. absolutely agree. I think Hunchback's one of the finest works of art we've ever produced. Mm. But I think I think marketing tried to push it as a happy-go-lucky, fun kids movie. And uh, the parents who took their kids to it suddenly got this song about Hellfire in the middle of it. Yeah, and kids it was, ended up in therapy. <laughs> was, so I think we had some, some goodwill in... And and Hercules uh, was one of the, was the first film I think that didn't qu- didn't quite hit a hundred million domestic. I'm trying oh, to think what okay. Hercules is love. It's a definite as far as the the song and dance goes. I mean that's that's a plus. That's top notch. I couldn't ask for better. All the song and dance numbers were, were wonderful in it. It has my favorite song of all time in it in a Disney film. It was sung by Meg. Yes. Is it Megan accidentally Mason. in love? 
I won't say I'm in love. I won't say I'm in love. Yeah. Susan Egan, singing voice on that one. She performs at Pepperdine every year. She is wonderful. Yeah. She is an awesome Broadway performer, and just that song just just nails it. Yeah. And I and I forget there's something else to Hercules. Girls, I don't know why. She's definitely one of the best heroines. When I talk to my students, no, she is. She's a she great is. heroine, and girls hate her. They really don't like her. Because she's, she's confident and, and, and sexy well, she's, and sure of herself. Well, and, she's bitter and cynical. And yeah. she's been dumped. And I think that was it. I think no girl wants to go envision herself as a princess who got dumped by her boyfriend. Not just dumped. Yeah. Her soul got sold off to Hades. <laughs> but when you say appear, appealing to the teenage market, I think of Hercules. I mean, that's... Yeah. I was I was always I glad the TV show kind of reignited some some interest in the characters and I think that show was really funny yeah and and I think this is I think Hercules is one of those movies that was underappreciated yeah when, yeah, when it was released at the in the box office for a number of reasons it kind of followed Hunchback and I mm -hmm. think we had some goodwill to make up with our audience at that point a little yeah. bit and and um, yeah they just. Yeah, and the humor is... An underrated gem, yeah. It really is fun, and it's exciting, and, and they get a lot of mileage out of these characters. I saw an episode of House of Mouse where mm -hmm. Hades was, like, trying to hit on Maleficent, but he was unsure of himself, <laughs> and he was trying to get, like, tips for how to, how to, how to like, ask her for a date. <laughs> yeah. I, that was a great episode. And, and look, I, I don't mean to step up to the pulpit right now, but I always see the parallels of... It's the god that becomes man and sacrifices himself, diving into the well of souls to save the woman, and then he himself dies, but because he's god, he resurrects. And those, from a storytelling standpoint, are some very powerful themes that... Well, uh, you, but that's the real climax right there, is him sacrificing himself. And he doesn't you, know if he's going to resurrect. And if you want to talk about... He becomes the god again, you know. Well, and if you want to talk about irony... At the time, the studio wasn't... They weren't big into comic books and superheroes. Times have changed, right? Yeah. Now they own Marvel, now it's <laughs> yeah. Avengers, now they're going to be in the theme parks. But back then, you know, when the artists wanted to do something comic book and superhero-y, they kind of had to disguise it. Batman was a hit, so we, 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 we had gargoyles. Right. Yeah, he's not a superhero, but he's wings, Dark Knight, Avenger, or the more obvious Darkwing Duck. Darkwing Duck. <laughs> uh, so Hercules was really our comic was our superhero movie. Yeah, you know, but we it's kind that. of disguised as a Greek god yeah. um, kind of thing. But it's Superman, Superman yeah, the movie. The, it literally is in some ways. It's Superman the movie. Yeah. The, the Zeus monument is very much the Jor El mm -hmm. fortress of solitude. You know, he's and, he's adopted. Meg's like the hard hard bitten reporter type, you know, and she's yeah. the normal mortal that he falls in love with and. And she, you know, saves her at the yeah. end. You know, just, he doesn't, you know, he sacrifices himself. And Superman, like, he, he sacrifices world history to save her life. You know, in a sense, there's that sacrificial Yeah, there's, there's definitely that, that parallels. I remember, this was... They're, they're messianic figures, you know. To the only thing I had, I had one story issue with Hercules. Mm -hmm. that, that I just thought we, we spent the entire movie telling him to stop thinking with his fists. Yeah. Right? That, that Hydra fight was amazing. Yeah, you know, and you got you got Philip Tidys going, kid, stop hitting the hydras! You stop with the head chopping. Yeah. <laughs> you know, think with your head. Think with your head. And and the whole bit, the Titans are supposed to be these huge, massive, monumental threats to the entire world. And I just thought Herc kind of defeats them a little too easily. 
Yeah, he takes the tornado one, swings them around, sucks them all in. Throws them away, and I thought... And I thought, you know, like, here's one of those things where, again, I would have rather had him right. think his way out of that ending. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and actually, I kind of wrote in, you know, maybe it's something like he gets his, you know, he gets his butt handed to him. He gets just thrashed by the Titans, and he realizes he can't defeat them. But what he can do is turn their own power against each other, right? You have something that's a water What if he broke the gods out of prison, and, and then they as an army came and defeated them? Which is kind of what you know. actually happened in Greek mythology. Yeah, but you could have you could have visually had them had him. They're so the Titans are so dumb. I was thinking like maybe you could turn the Titans' power against each other. Yeah, you know, have the water hit the earth and turn into a mudslide, and then that smothers yeah. the flames, and then then the the wind then the the the, the wind like knocks them all away. If they you could they could all cancel each other out. You're absolutely right. The only way I kind of excuse that is to be like, well, saving Meg is the real climax. Like, and it you're is. Kind of getting Save, saving Meg is the real climax. Yeah. And I think at that point, even... Throwing the, Hades into the, the Well of Souls and... That's a sort of a thing. So, now we go into Statue Land. <laughs> the, uh, the, the mock head. You have a, a Walt Disney Classics collectible, Tarzan. Marquette. I guess that's a French word. Maquette. Maquette. My cat statue, limited edition. One of the cooler employee wrap party gifts. Yes, it seems like worth this, over four hundred dollars. This one's very unique it's in that cool. it was hand painted. Yeah, most of the cats are not gorgeous. painted. A lot of the animators don't like it painted because they enjoy looking at the lines. Do you paint it? Molding. No, Sh Sherry Van Dolly, one of the painters at Disney Ink mm -hmm. Paint, painted that for me, and she was. They were painting it. They were trying to, to, to get some more business for the department. They thought they did this as a prototype to show them what it would look like mm. um, and did all the textures to match the deep canvas uh, tree branches in the movies. And, and, I think uh, it looks she, better painted. I do, too. Yeah. And they, she, she gave that to me just as a gift. It was a prototype painting blood. And it was awesome. I was yeah. so happy. He looks naked in this, but he's not. He, no, has, he does have a loincloth. He has a loincloth. That's important. So you worked on Tarzan. I did. You were around for that. Yeah. That was cool. How was that? Awesome. Who's the, the creative team involved in that? Do you remember? Uh, they've gone on to do good things. Kevin Lima, I think, was one of the directors. Mm -hmm. uh, they've actually gone on to do a lot of other stuff, like even live action. Uh, I'm trying to think. I was, I was always... I was a little worried at first. I love Edgar Rice Burroughs. You know, Disney had always had the rights to John Carter, more Lord of Mars. Yeah. And, and when I heard we were doing Tarzan, I said, oh no, I'm going to get like the Broadway musical version. I'm going to get Tarzan going with the I Want song. I want to be more than an yeah. ape man swinging from tree <laughs> to tree. <laughs> so you were pleasantly surprised then. And I was like, then I heard we got Phil Collins to do the music. I'm like, yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, Broadway musicals are awesome and they're great and they had made Disney movies up to that point. But yeah, let's give me someone with some percussion and some driving force and some rock and some jungle. And he just layered different drums and he, he wasn't even the original guy to be uh, doing the, the uh, score for the movie. But he, on his own time, on his own dime, he put together some scratch mm -hmm. tracks and some things he had layered. To, uh, to try to, uh, to convince Disney to let him also do the soundtrack. And they were just blown away by his work. His music really drives so much that's going on in that film. And, uh, and it's action-packed. Tarzan is, honestly, one of the best, one of the absolute best as far as like action, adventure, mm -hmm. 
um, but still managed to get the kid friendly you know versions in and I thought the, there's uh, so much yeah the the trash in the camp song was so innovative it was in, it, it kind of sounds that they used kind of comes out of nowhere and, and doesn't have a lot to do with the story but it's it's yeah. it's it is you know it's a fun sequence for the kids to have fun with and yes it's stomp it has to be one of the old the only songs with with no lyrics to it you know. And I have an early memory of of watching the Disney Channel, and they used to always play this kind of making of thing where they would show skateboarders and surfers and then show the animation of Tarzan and show that that was inspiring his Very movements inspired. and, and what they did as Sliding through the trees. And I remember they, they kept showing that on, on the Disney Channel. If you ever get a chance to to watch the uh, the two disc uh, DVD version of Tarzan, there is a deleted scene or an alternate ending that they ended up not using. That uh, both Mark Walton and I agree was was for us like far more like exciting. Does he it's, die? And they and Mark <laughs> told me the reason they didn't use it was okay. So the the, the sequence is they've got they they've captured the apes. They've got them in in cages and they're on a boat and they're they're sailing up the river to go out to the ocean on this boat on this river mm -hmm. and 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 Mark said that the uh, the reason they didn't use it was they you know they wanted Tarzan to be in his element the river wasn't his element you know and it wasn't part of who Tarzan is and and Mark Mark was like but but that's the whole point the hero is mm -hmm. supposed to have the odds stacked against him yeah, the river, we've been in the trees through most of the movie, now he's in the river, he's not in his element, he's on a human boat that's full of, you know, motors and mechanized things and weapons, and, and but that's the point, Tarzan shouldn't be in his element because he's the hero, he should have all the odds stacked against him, and this sequence was just amazing, the, the, um, uh, Clayton's got a gun, he's firing at Tarzan, there's explosives on the boat, the boat catches on fire, the apes fall, cages fall off the boat, they're in the water and they start drowning in the water. One of the apes, like, gets close to the propeller and, 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 and Jane is down there trying to free him and she almost gets chopped up by the propeller and before it's a last second Tarzan pulls him out. It's just really, really intense. I mean, some of the, I've shown this, this, this sequence in class, they have it on the, the DVD and some of the kids are like, that would be too intense. I mean, they all these apes are almost getting killed, and they're really like getting close yeah. to getting chopped and burned. And Tarzan's trying to rescue the apes and keep from getting shot at and fight all the guys in the boat. And it's a spectacular sequence. And um, yeah, that's interesting. And, and uh, I really like that ending. So uh, to watch it. Watch, watch if you get yeah. get the two disc Tarzan disc. It's uh, it's a spectacular. Um, so rap. Is... it is. It is probably a little too intense for smaller kids, though. Which mm -hmm. I can understand. Maybe they didn't want to go quite that intense with their. So this is pretty much the only figure you have. The this only, is. This the is the only maquette I have. Maquette you have. So, so that's um, you know it's significant right there. Sherry yeah. said. Sherry said she actually thought I looked like him. My hair was the nose and the face. That yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. It was a very cold Halloween that year for you. <laughs> well, my great, my greatest, my 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 the best one. I got a couple of a couple of, of great compliments while I was at Disney. When I was giving all the, the Disney store managers a tour of the department once, yeah. and they were all like kind of talking and giggling to themselves. Just as Tarzan. No, and I, and I was kind of wondering, and, and one of them kind of sheepishly walked up to me and said, "We were just wondering, were you the were you the character model for Aladdin?" Oh. They, 
And some of the artists who work on it actually said I looked Quinn. more like him than the guy who was the uh, the character because <laughs> uh, who was the voiceover actor. But I have, yeah, I have probably would have been similar in age. Not too. I have more of Aladdin's nose. <laughs> <laughs> and the um, the other one was uh, was Phil Collins came into our department because he wanted to because mm-hmm. his he wanted to see the, the hand inking and painting process, and his daughter wanted to paint a cell. His daughter, so, Lily Collins? His daughter, Lily Collins. Wow. She loved animation so much. We, we'd never had any of these big, big actors, talent people come into our little department piece of history and want to know how the old style was. And Lily really wanted to paint a cell. She just loved the classic uh, animation, like art. Like, so she and Phil were there, and they were... We showed them how to paint and and do inking and and sat them down at the the artist table and that's cool. As as her acting has taken off, she'd be like, I knew her when and she was I knew her she before was Snow White. Yeah, she she went on to become Snow White. It was really cool. It was that that was the other thing. They were they were all the artists were kind of taking pictures with everyone and and Lily actually grabs me and wants to get her picture photo taken with me. <laughs> like after I'd give him a tour. Hey, what you the Aladdin? Yeah. <laughs> Now <laughs> reference wall. <laughs> so she yanks me at it from the sideline and pulls me into the photograph with everybody else. That was that was I can say I knew her when she was like five. <laughs> like five. So now we're going to comic book land. Okay, this is about comic books, and you have a very valuable comic book, and there's that these two comic books go together. You have the Brave and the Bold number fifty four. From 1964, the first appearance of the Teen Titans. Yep. They weren't known as the Teen Titans back then. They were just Kid Flash, Aqualad, and Robin. Yeah. That's cool, because I know you're a big fan of the Teen Titans and of Perez and Wolfman mm-hmm. and their work. And, and every comic book fan needs that one comic that's worth over $200, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Frame somewhere. So Rick Rick got me that book. He he found it at a at a convention. I think at Fanami up in the Bay Area, and he just picked it up as a birthday gift for me one year. And I think right. he only paid like sixty dollars for it or something. It wasn't he didn't like. But he knew what it was. Yeah, right. He, he knew, knew what it was. This is the first appearance. This is a significant issue here. This was a Kent book. He said. Yeah. Do you know who um who was working, Brave in the Wall at the time? Uh, I, th- I think Nicardi did the art inside, and he would go on to become their main artist later on. But the cover, I'm not sure. It's sort of like this time-traveling tornado guy. He has kind of this... Mr. Twister. This is... Yeah, he can, he can, he can make tornadoes happen out of anything. He's kind of one of the, the lesser-known villains, uh, I would say. Yeah, they would, they would kind of retroactively try to put a spin on him for the Titans anniversary issue. He's wearing issue. kind of this Victorian kind of clothing, you know? Yeah, they turned it, later they turned him into a big multi-tentacled alien from another dimension which was another classic 60s Titan villain and okay. George Perez kind of rewrote the origin story to kind of integrate these two different villains yeah. together and it was a really good the gargoyle that was it he became the gargoyle which was mm-hmm. uh, another major Titans villain I like that story it's a little convoluted it tries to integrate like three or four different origin stories into one I'm, I'm guessing though these characters were all introduced as sidekicks before yes and yes, then kind of had. So did he like defeat the adult counterparts, and now they kind of? No, it was just one of those things where yeah, he's a lesser villain, so the 
the other. Like, I'll just send the kids after him. Well, there was... There Robin was a, can take care of this. Back, back in the 60s, <laughs> and back in the 60s, there was a real, you know, counterculture thing. Like, there was... The youth movement was against the mm. war in Vietnam, and there was, there was this huge us versus them, kids versus adult thing, and Hatton Corners was this place that basically became a police state for teenagers. They, they had curfews... And had all these different uh, problems, and then the teenagers are all kidnapped by this guy, and then the hmm. adults are like, "Where are our kids go?" And that's why Kid Flash, Aqualad, and Robin decide to investigate it because it's this town where all the teenagers have disappeared after they were um, rebelling against their parents. Yeah, and, I think it's and, neat. Yeah, I'm trying to remember yeah. that how that whole story went, but I think it's neat. The um, the resurgence of Aqualad in Young Justice has been really cool. So he's one of the best characters in Young Justice. And he was the leader of the oh, team. I remember from this story, um, there was actually the scene where, where the adult super, where they're talking about this town and how the teenagers were all being revived. And the, the adult heroes are like, ah, oh, those kids are just being spoiled brats. And Robin and Kid Flash are going, no, we think we have, they, have, they have valid points. You know, we want to go help them and, mm. and, with, and figure out what they're trying to say. So even even the junior heroes were kind of rising up against the uh, the elder heroes. Yeah. This of course is the Wally West Kid Flash, mm. you know. Yeah. But before he becomes the Flash. And now Wally West Very no cool. longer exists. In the new Fifty Two, he's been written out of history. Robin still was let's, wearing let's pants at this from, point. No, no pants. And, and the pixie boots. And, and Aqualad wasn't wearing pants either. Yeah, and it was. Well, he does swim a lot. I mean, why? Yeah, yeah that's true. Makes sense. And that's, that's why he shaves his legs. <laughs> you know, it's the water friction there. And this kind of a companion piece, Superman and Green Lantern. DC Comics Presents number 26. First off, a great Jim Starlin artwork Superman Green Lantern story. Yeah. Right, you ever wonder if Superman and Green Lantern were getting a fight, who would win? Well, this one kind of answers the question. Green Lantern just creates a bunch of kryptonite. Boom. Game over. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Game. Um, if my grandmother had kryptonite, she could win. <laughs> yeah. um, a whole world of kryptonite. Hi, you can't possibly survive that until Superman returns. Then you could, like, lift the whole thing up and throw it out of order. We won't talk about the improbability of that. Okay. But, but um, it's interesting. This, it's kind of just a side note. Bonus. Introducing the new Teen Titans, a free sixteen-page preview, yeah. which uh, which it's they, like a footnote. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a side thing. They didn't know what they had, but but there had been the Titans had lasted through most of the sixties. Uh, they had a, a kind of they they were canceled uh, in the early seventies. They were brought back very briefly for a short run in the mid seventies. Where they owned a discotheque and, <laughs> and they had Mal Duncan was this disco AI <laughs> uh, and they had Joker's daughter and she was two faces but she was really Two Face's daughter and it was anyway it was a it product was, of its time a product of it didn't last very long <laughs> most people kind of forget about the seventies Titans that only lasted like twelve fourteen issues they teamed up with Casey and the Sunshine Man so in the eighties Marv Wolfman and and who was a big fan of the old sixties tales and Titans. Yeah, uh, and and George Perez, we're gonna resurrect the team again, and they and to give them a a, a good send off, they they gave them a preview inside DC when they wanted to launch new untested titles, they would preview them inside of comics that were selling really well. So mm -hmm. you had a super, DC Comics present was kind of like the Batman's the the Superman version of Brave and the Bold. Brave and the Bold was turned into a Batman team up book. 
later on. Mm-hmm. So DC Comics presents Be with the Superman team up book. So it's a good place okay. to preview uh, the Teen Titans, the new Teen Titans. And so nobody knew what they were. Nobody knew what they would eventually turn into. It was kind of a dream sequence where where Dick Grayson had this nightmare about this protoplastic plasmic monster, and that turned out to be the monster that kills Cyborg's parents and turn that kills that turns Cyborg into a cyborg in the first place. So it introduced Cyborg and Starfire. It introduced everybody, right? Yes. Including like Raven. Raven, yes. Raven okay. was the one who sort of interpreted Beast his Boy? dream. Beast Beast Boy was around in the sixties. Okay. He was part of Doom Patrol, which is why whenever in the Teen Titans cartoon they always eventually introduced Doom Patrol with with Beast Boy because mm-hmm. that was his original team he was with back in the sixties. Yeah. But nobody really for everyone forgot about him, and he was a member of the Titans in the sixties as well. But everyone kind of forgot about him until he was introduced with Marv and George, and they they renamed him Changeling because they thought Beast Boy was a little silly. <laughs> I like, no, Beast Boy's a better name. Yep. Raven, of course, is the best Teen Titan. And uh, Marvin George. So Marvin George gave us the, the incarnation of Beast Boy that we really know today. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but Raven, Starfire, and Cyborg were all completely their creations, brand new. So without that issue, we don't have the we animated have, series. We don't have the animated series. We don't have... Uh, I don't know if you can see, but Hungry Lantern, there's kind of this demon monster. Yeah, he was, he was he was kind of possessed by an alien. That's why yeah, it was so really good art. Yeah, I also really creepy looking. There's something else about this that, that is also significant. This was maybe the first time they let someone other than Kurt Swan or someone who, hmm. who, who kind of had that more like traditional superhero style draw Superman. You may even okay. remember the Kirby Supermans from the from the 70s. Kirby's style was so way far out there, they actually had, they, all, they redrew Superman over him in those Jimmy Olsen issues to make him look more like traditional Superman instead of Jack Kirby's Superman. So this was the first time I can recall ever seeing Superman in a more stylized, darker yeah, uh, like, art, yeah. art style, and it looked really good on him. So to it me, did. as a comic book collector, and this was... Okay, up until then, my my parents or my grandparents had got me books when I was a kid in elementary school. But Mm -hmm. I had stopped collecting. I stopped buying them for a while. I didn't have money. I didn't have anything. So in high school, I finally got my first job, and I remembered, oh, I used to like comic books a lot. And someone told me, oh, they have comic book shops now. And I said, oh, where is one? And I had to bike like about four or five miles away. It was was about six or seven miles. But, But I got down there, and this was literally the first time I ever walked into... Um, this comic book shop. I, I'd seen a couple of little stores before. This was sure. like, the, and I'd been to like flea markets where people would sell their back issues. But this was the first time I'd ever been in a comic book shop, and the first comic I ever bought, like my for myself, was this. Was this? Wow! What a great start, huh? Yeah. So you didn't know what you had your hands on, or that even? I, yeah. Oh, this little kid team is going to turn into their own title. I, I only had enough money for like one thing. book, I think, or just like one or two books. I said, "Well, this seems like a good e- deal." There's 16 free extra pages in this, and I like Superman. He was my favorite from a kid, and I love Green Lantern. Actually, Superman wasn't my favorite. Green Lantern was my favorite. So, but but Ken, so what, this was like the perfect comic. What did ever happen to Sargon the Sorcerer? The issue wants to know. That's a semi-interesting <laughs> Sargon the Sorcerer. They had a whatever happened to these old heroes from the 30s and 40s and 50s. 
And Sargon was a sort, you know, he was a mystic yeah. character from the 30s. Well, they had 40s. to fill 25 pages somehow. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually kind of a clever, a clever little story with a twist at the end about Sargon, who's a sorcerer who gets his power from this mystic gem, but it would drive him insane, so he didn't use it anymore. And this this other guy was attempting to steal it from the museum it's at. And it's a clever, clever story. Um, so mm. where it looks like Sargon's stolen it again, and he's gone insane again, and he's trying to trap this other villain who's trying to get it. And at the end of the story, you find out it was all a trick, and the mm. gem had never left its case. Like a true magician, he he didn't use real magic. He used, well, I mean, he used magic, but he used sleight of hand to defeat the bad guy. And I thought it was a cleverly written story. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. He manages a department store in Salem now. Yes. That's what happened to him. That's... So, um, still in the in the realm of comics, these two guys are a companion piece. Okay. 1992, The Death of Superman. This black uh, cover, the black bag, the black bag, bag, the the black bag this, issue This is actually released. came out after this one, although it's a reprint of... But it's the platinum it, it, edition. It looks like a tombstone. Here lies Earth's greatest hero. Right. It's signed. There's a signature here. Dan Jurgen. The writer artist behind the death of Superman. And it's the um it's the platinum edition yeah. of the death of Superman. That's there very cool. Very, very few copies went out. I think like one copy to each comic book store in the country if they were ordered a certain amount. And they sent out uh ten uh and they sent out and and they sent they actually sent out copies of the platinum edition to everyone who got a letter published in the final issue of Superman. Oh. So so as kind of a marketing ploy, when they after they killed Superman, a few issues later they actually canceled the series. Hmm. And it was um, Superman seventy seven, and they said the end, and they kind of temporarily canceled it. They brought it back later, but but just to kind of show funeral for a friend eight. So this was the eighth part. Superman was was published right, across three saying. different books back then. Superman Adventures of Superman and Action Comics. Mm -hmm. So Funeral for a Friend kind of ran across all those different titles. So it was okay. like so part seven might have been an action comics, part six was an adventurer's, part five was in Superman. But the um Yeah, he's flying to heaven. But I had but I had written in a letter and I'd written about how I was really impressed with how they handled the new Lex Luthor and whether he was reformed and 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 you know, typically my, my, you know, themes of redemption and, and thoughtfulness about about character development that they were putting in the villain for the piece. I actually wrote mm. this whole letter about Lex Luthor, and at the time, he was uh, killed. And they, and they and trimmed it down and printed it. And they print and they trimmed it down <laughs> and they printed it. But everybody who got a letter printed in the final issue of Superman was given by DC Comics a a, platinum, a copy of the platinum version of the Signed? Death of Superman. Or did now, you get Dan, the signature yourself? Dan Jurgens. Now there was a sign on the outside bag, but then when I met Dan Jurgens in person, I really wanted to get him to sign it for real, so I took it out of the bag. I felt like that was worth it. I felt no, like I to am. get Dan Jurgens to actually sign the platinum Absolutely. copy was worth pulling it out of the bag. It's a cool tombstone cover. And his his pen, in mm -hmm. the silver matches. Silver matches it. So was this really the the last issue? Like I said, they temporarily the canceled it, and then they brought it back like a couple of months with, later. With the return of Superman series. Well, they brought it back with the the um, 
the uh, with the replacement reign, reign of this yeah the replacement yeah. reign of the Superman storylines which I still think is one of the best Superman storylines of all time that was just you know the which ones the, which Tanner ones, Reeves was one of them <laughs> which one's the real Superman you know is it Superboy is it Clone is it Cyborg Superman is 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 it the uh, the Kryptonian you know, Eradicator Superman is it uh, the you know is John Henry Irons really a reincarnation of Superman uh, it's just, but all four of those characters just turn into great characters, and and the so way they you got Jurgens to sign both of them. Mm. Done. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. Now, after the the rain and the return, did they end the series? No, after they returned, then it's, he's back. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, at some point, out, though, none like, of the four was really Superman. But I remember that yeah. whole time we're all wondering which one of these four is Superman. Well, here's the question though: if if there are four series, Man of Steel, Action Comics, Superman, Adventures of Superman, Adventures of Superman, and Super Adventures became Adventures of Superboy, kind of, and then they all combined with the death, right? Mm -hmm. Did they then split back into four series? Well, they were always four different series. But you may notice that there's this little triangle number here with a 10 on it. Yeah. Because while they were four separate titles, mm -hmm. they, they kind of, the, the editing, the editors kind of considered them to be one ongoing weekly series. Yeah. So they gave it a double number to show it which, which order that issue came yeah. in inner thread with the other titles. Okay. So like the, the previous issue of Action Comics, which may have been Action Comics, you know, 378, would have a triangle on it that said nine, mm -hmm. you know, and and so that you would know like, oh, this is Superman one through four six. So this is the order that I should read these issues. So in. so John Byrne revamped Superman in the mid eighties, mm -hmm. right? With Man of Steel, right? Does that series ever end? What happened? Or does it end with like Final Crisis? In, in, okay, in, in Crisis on Infinite Earth pretty much ended the DC Universe as we knew it in the Silver Age mm -hmm. and the Bronze Age. Um, and it was a chance to reboot a bunch of characters. And so so Alan, Alan Moore wrote that final story of the, the Silver Age Superman, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever happened in The Man of Tomorrow, which you just read, which was poignant and tragic and really gripping. But that was technically like the last. So DC Comics didn't want to lose the numbering, though. Superman and Action mm -hmm. Comics have been so high numbered, and they wanted to keep the prestige of keeping this long-running numbered title going. Number two thousand. So what they did was they kept Action Comics going, same numbering, uh, but they they came up with a brand new Superman number one, which is why the number on Superman is so low. So that. So this this comic of Superman restarted yeah, this in is the just, 80s. No, it's not adventures, it's just Superman. Advi so they, they changed the title of the original Superman comic to Adventures of Superman, mm -hmm. so they could keep that numbering going. And then Superman the Man of Steel was, was a brand new book, so they could have a fourth title and ship four titles a week. And that's the story behind it. But then when final, then after... It's so yeah, yeah. I I kind of wish Final Crisis had convoluted a little bit. I kind of wish Final Crisis had really they had kind of ended the universe and rebooted Fifty Two after that <laughs> would have made more sense. But they waited another year and then they had Pair of Flashpoint Paradox and they said, you know, let's reboot it now. Let's let's you know like uh, so it was the Flashpoint Paradox was what 
when when Flash went back and fixed time was what caused the New Fifty Two reboot. So when they did that just a couple of years ago, that's when they truly renumbered Detective and Action Comics back to number one. I'm I'm just curious if anyone other than Alan Moore had the opportunity to write the last Superman story. What do you mean? For, for a series. Like if someone else had an ending where they're like, we're going to depower him or something, he ends up in Lo- with Lois, he's, you know, if anyone else wrote the last story. I think they'd written a lot, written a lot of imaginary stories. And they would call them, this is an imaginary story. Well, they're all imaginary. But basically saying, this is a story that's not in combination, but this is, what would happen if Superman married Lois Lane and settled down and got there? Not in continuity. I think the best best Superman imaginary story was probably Secret Identity. Yes. At any rate, um, you you have this this beautiful um, leather-bound Kingdom Come Revelations book from 1996. Um, Really cool looking. Like a Bible. Like Deliberately so. It's even got the silver-plated edges. Yeah. Because the main character in the story is the Reverend, right? And the whole thing's about, you know, Armageddon and, and the, book called, the Book of Revelation coming to life. But the world's, like, incinerated in fire because all the heroes are fighting each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and definitely a, a pinnacle moment in comics. I mean, the mid-'90s Alex Ross... Definitely sophisticated read, kind of an older audience read, I would say. One of those really books, took it seriously. If ever they were, you know, going to do an animated adaptation of something, you would think this might be an adaptation. But the problem is how to do it justice, like yeah. on on an animated uh, like it would, they would have to do it across two movies. There's no way they could fit that into one film. Sorry, can I get some? There was an an article in the news about a meteor shower that only happens every 102 years, to which Larry King replied, this again. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Anyway, so yeah, it's a great book, Kingdom Come. It's leather-bound. Probably cost you a fortune. They're not going to get the reference to that because they didn't get the universe (laughs) reboots. I was a (laughs) non-sequitur. Um, this this is, is a thin, but you you actually have the the complete thick companion piece to it as, as well. It's not pictured is the the thick companion piece. The actual hardbound, which isn't leather. Oh no, it is leather bound. See, it's got the gold and it is it is leather. Anyways, really nicely done. this is bad radio. Start talking. Where'd you get it? How'd you get your hands on it? Who signed it? I, I, Why is I, it a prized possession? Tell us something. Did I get Mark Wade to sign this? I thought I got Alex this, Ross to sign it. This one has... has Mark Wade and Alex Ross. And Alex Ross, yeah. Although I think they signed all of them. Like They, they only made like a limited number of these. There's... Uh, 10,000? Yeah. I don't know if they signed all 10,000. Well, this came as a set, right? This, right. You have... So where'd you get it? How'd you get them to sign it? It came signed? I, I, I think this one actually came signed. Alright. Uh, the, There's a story behind it, damn it! Did I, did I, did I get them to sign this? 
No, 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 no. I did get them to sign this. Sorry, that was no, right, no. Yeah. This this came signed, but I did. I did story. get to meet them. I did get to see them at Comic Con. You uh, thanked them for their for their great for, for really a milestone in comics. At this point, it really is a milestone. It's you know? beautiful painted art. It's it's been referenced so many times. Yeah. Every time you see Shazam do the the Shazam and strike somebody else as the lightning, you have Mark Wade and Alex Ross to thank yeah. for that. This was the first book they did that. You can take any although, panel. Although technically, Superman kind of did it in the seventies with the Captain Thunder thing a little bit, but it was. No, but this was... Okay, we're the, splitting hairs now. The lightning strike was, was Mark Wade and, and Alex Ross in Kingdom Come, and Shazam's used it ever since. Mm -hmm. It's also sad that Shazam also becomes the kid that everyone seems to kill ever yeah. since Kingdom Come. Like, it's, it's a death... It's obviously the sacrifice that makes the most impact. He's the purest, the pure-hearted. But then I kind of... You can even see echoes of that in Injustice, God's Among Us. Mm -hmm. You get the, the now Superman... It, the, the it is considered a multiverse story, though. Because Superman and, and Lois are pregnant. Well, you were asking before who got to write the last Superman story. Mark Wade did. Didn't Superman... Mark Wade... Lois is dead, right? Right, and Lois is pregnant and Joker kills her. So again, and that got referenced in Injustice, you know, Gods Among Us yeah. kind of took that as well. Yeah, so I mean, it takes place in the future, you know, we should start with, if you're not familiar with Kingdom Come. And, and Mark Waite said it's the last Superman story. This is the yeah. last Superman story. Yeah. As which had pitched it. Anytime you're at the last Superman story, you're making history <laughs> in a big, bad way. And it's a really good. pressure's on. It's you a know? really good last Superman you know. story. So where did where'd you get this book? Amazon? <laughs> no, it was before Amazon. Um, Barnes and Noble? <laughs> you, get that? Literally you just can't pick up a leather-bound kind of thing. I mean, that's too much of a rare kind of... It actually might have been Borders. Might have been Borders? Yeah. Big Kieran. Okay. Well, that's cool, too. Yeah, sorry. It's not, no. not a spectacular story. It, it must have cost that. a pretty penny. But um, or or I ordered it through my comic book shop in Simi Valley. I think that that actually is how I got it. I was living in Simi. I was working at Disney. I could see it was memorable. I actually had a job that was paying decent money. I could afford something like this. Yeah. <laughs> well, we made it into your collection and, and a worthy um, addition to the collection here. Okay, leaving comic book land. We're go going back to Disney for a moment. You have this really cool. You have a few of these. This is just one example yeah. of, of a few. Um, this Fantasia 2000 Visions of Hope book. It's, it's a large book. Really gorgeous. Lots of color photos. Mini I see you, you picked the one with Noah's Ark on the cover, which is cool. I like Donald Duck. I yeah. like that sequence. <laughs> Biblical. Mm hmm. And that's Ford actually by Rory Disney, who was a friend of yours. That maybe that I, I've <laughs> met him a couple of times. Commentary by James Lovin, whoever he is. I love the bit where Donald's watching the two ducks walk on board the ark, and he kind of stops and looks at the camera. What? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who James Lovin is? Uh, Levine. Levine. Uh, he was the, the he was the Disney's lawyer. Oh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, Fantasia 2000, I, people told me, was if you, if you broke up the, the, 
the minute for minute cost. They were ten years making that. Yeah. Now we worked people, at Disney during this time. People thought it was like the most two thousand elaborate production we've ever made. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so this was uh, was it a a wrap party gift kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. And they released That's it in cool. IMAX. They actually yeah. built an IMAX screen over in L- by LAX just to just to show this. Oh wow! Well. And and they eventually, I mean, I think they eventually took the screen down when they rebuilt the bridge there. Hmm. But they before the bridge was there, they they built a temporary IMAX screen just to show Fantasia two thousand. It was such a big deal. Cool. All right. Well, that's where you got it. It's a cool book. Beautiful. All all these books are beautiful. Yeah. These these art is Disney. Yeah, you have a few of them. And um, my department would actually help come up with the art and art art. Now, did you these. pick the one with Noah's Ark on the cover? Are you, are you like, I want that one. I think or so. Kind of. Yeah, I think I think I picked the Noah's Ark. Okay, because they have a few different versions of the cover. Yeah, I mean that would be frame worthy right there. I mean, what a. And I still have my. Uh, I still have my. I'm drinking from my Fantasia Continued <laughs> coffee mug. Ah. When the the title the, the title of the movie was originally going to be Fantasia Continued, and, and you have that flying whale statue. You know, originally they were going to uh, add on to Fantasia, but then they said, "Well, this movie's going to be like four hours long. They're going to show like all the original and, <laughs> and um, like, or 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 it was going to be a completely completely new stuff." But then they kind of integrated some of the old yeah. stuff with some of the new stuff. It went through a lot of revisions. That mm-hmm. that final sequence, Tony Anselmo was the, uh, or not Anselmo is the voice of Donald Duck, but Tony, oh, I forgot his last name, great artist, but he did the Firebird sequence mm-hmm. at the end. And they had like three different ways they were going to try to match Night on Bald Mountain with mm-hmm. a finale for, for this Fantasia. Such a hard, trying to top that sequence is, mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the most memorable Disney villains ever. If you've ever seen Fantasmic and seen the the mm. giant winged, now you have so. to admit though, as, as someone who's been to a lot of these, it's nice to see pomp and circumstance somewhere other than a high school graduation. <laughs> that was just perfect. The music plays it's perfectly nice to, to the gag. The the notion yeah. the the notion plays great to you know all the the back and forth yeah. and the humor going on. Penn and Teller introduced that sequence. I love Steve Martin. Oh, do you like this this band? They were trained at the Steve Martin mm-hmm. School of Musicians and fun stuff. And here, can you, here I'm going to demonstrate with a bow and violin. And he just throws the bow around. Could I have my stick thingy, please? <laughs> <laughs> but you know who's even cooler than Steve Martin is Indiana Jones. Okay. You're a huge fan of this guy. And uh, quite the collector as well. This you have this collector's album from 1981, signed by Frank Marshall. Yep, which is just cool. And of course, and you have the DVD box office, and you have the soundtrack box office, which is really cool. Box office, box, <laughs> box set, box set. <laughs> I was back in my theater days. The box office. Um. I have it's multiple, movie special eighty one. I have multiple there. They used to they used to print those for for most big films. They had one for Clash of the Titans. I had one for um, Dragon Slayer. Those were really the, cool. The, this one's your favorite though. Yeah, it's the Dragon Slayer one was pretty cool. It's and I know we were talking about Drew. This is Amsel. Right, and remember you know, I said Drew Struzan did not do the original. Did not do the original. Yeah. 
right? He did he did when they re-released Indiana Jones. You can see it on the cover of the DVD box. Yeah. They, he did a, a new poster, which Amsel, a lot though, this more. is a damn good image. I mean, yes, that Amsel's equally as as good. That's... It was interesting to me when this movie came out. This image is. Um, you know, it's not action-packed. I had no idea what this film was about. There, mm. there, was, there was so much mystery behind yeah. what this movie was and, and what was going on. And, yeah. and I almost don't want to say... He, he he's not as sexy as Struzan's version, you know, kind of a few buttons. But I like I was intrigued by it. I was, I was kind of like, I didn't know much about World War II. I, didn't, mm. I had seen the Flash Gordon serials, but those were obviously like a much different type yeah, of thing true. than the Two-Fisted Adventure type. And we can probably talk. I think. I think this maybe uh, we'll save this for your other uh, yeah. podcast, the movie that changed my life. Because this <laughs> would we'll we, go into Raiders already, in depth. I've already talked ad infinitum about my other two like big ones, Back to the Future <laughs> and, and Aladdin on this one. So yeah, we'll we'll go into in depth we'll about. There's all sorts of Indiana Jones <laughs> stories to be told. But yeah, I love, uh, and I even had an original one uh, mini one sheet mm. from 1981 that I still have. You don't know that, but it's in my my rap posters upstairs. Oh, nice. Yep, nice. So, which you, which how did you image? get this this book, and and now this poster that you allegedly it, have? They were selling it at the theater lobby. So you so you got it back in '81. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. And, uh, and you weren't like rolling in the dough at age twelve or whatever. No, <laughs> you saw it. So not. this is it was really was a prize of... possession for for that age. And when uh, and and when and you Marshall for thirty years, that was so cool. Frank Marshall came when they re-released Raiders of the Lost Ark a year later. They used to re-release movies back then. It, it was still playing in San Jose. There were two theaters. It was play, it played at continuously. That, yeah. And and Frank Marshall traveled to both of them upon the re-release to kind of celebrate, help the community celebrate. Mm-hmm. And and I brought my my album with me. I had bought brought from the first year, and they were actually giving these away at the yeah. time as well. But Absolutely. he signed he's for for uh, for the people attending the the one year anniversary screening. But so he he signed, and I got to meet him and talk mm-hmm. to him, and and that was really that, that was the same up. theater you saw A New Hope at. Uh, at that point, Raiders had dropped down to Century 25, which was like one of their smaller screens. Oh, but it was okay. still playing yeah, at the Century still. Theaters. Similar, yeah. Staying in the same same market. It's cool. it's that, would a great pay off, that would pay off later when I saw Back to the Future 3, because after the movie, I'd recognize him in the bathroom. Like, nobody would recognize yeah. Frank Marshall. <laughs> I'd say, hey, you're Frank Marshall. I saw you at the Raiders. You're the Nazi. Time. And he said, oh, yeah, nice to see you again. Can I tell you? Well, let me introduce you. Do you know Steven Spielberg? <laughs> it's like, ah. <laughs> that was great. Um, the uh, yes, and you're the Nazi pilot from uh, <laughs> very cool. It's and everyone applauded when he came on screen yeah. during the screening. You don't see this Amsel image a lot anymore, but it's quite cool. Now there's one more item. It's subdued. Do you remember? Do you remember when Hollywood actually used to be kind of subdued? Didn't give you the entire movie in the trailer. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something. I am so, so happy. What was the movie? Um, Oblivion. I am so glad I did not see the trailer for Oblivion before I saw the film. It gives away the final. It actually gives away the whole mystery. And since the movie's a mystery movie, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, why? Why did they do that? (laughs) I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. I bet that... 
that was your hand you were holding. <laughs> you showed us all your cards. Now, there's one more item you, you insisted... Well, well, I've seen all this in the trailer. There must be another twist. Nope. <laughs> there so there, there's one more item that you insisted I include for some reason, so I guess we'll wrap it up with this. It's, it's some $5 toy from Toys R Us that, <laughs> that is allegedly a collectible. I don't know if, if you know... I don't think it's worth anything as a collectible. I guess there's some sentimental value attached to it. So. Well, I have to put batteries back in this thing. So, <laughs> so you could hear it go, chang, chang, and it would light up, and it would, and it's this little light sword. It would be 1% cooler. So, so Anthony and I, my coworker, my cohort, my cohort from, from the Ink and Paint Division for, for Halloween, we went as Men in Black. And okay. for obvious reasons, one of us was Mr. K and the other was Mr. J. <laughs> and, neither um, of which have a sword. And like neither of which have a sword, but this sword came as part of a two-pack with a really cool-looking alien gun. So, it's I, even less I, than $5. so I picked right, it was less than $5. So I picked it up to get the gun, but then when I pulled the sword out and saw the flashing lights and everything, I thought the sword was really cool. So I carried the sword with me, too, even though it's not really a Men in Black thing. You pretend it's a Neuralizer. <laughs> it, exactly. And so, so I'm walking around in Halloween, and Ron Clements um, sees me uh, with this, this sword. Mm -hmm. And he, they're about it's to like do... a Disney Halloween party. Yeah, this is... this. Yeah, and, he, cool. and he see, We always have trick-or-treating through the halls at, at the Hat Building. And, and he sees me with it, and they're about to do, like, once a year, they, they, the, the producers of each of the films in production kind of holds almost like Club Rush at, at Agura High, where all the clubs, like, put out their clubs and say, hey, join our club. So they put out, and they, they have this big Rush exhibit to see who wants to be part of which production that are currently wrapping up. Mm -hmm. And Ron says, hey, we've got this new production that's ramping up, and that sword would be perfect. I need to put together, like, a space pirate gear for it. And it was Treasure Planet, which was what he was ramping up for. So I said, and he asked me if he could borrow it wow. for his costume. So this is the co-director of Little Mermaid, Hercules, you can't say Aladdin, no to Clements. Aladdin. <laughs> and, and so I said, sure, sure. And, and, well, my and, firstborn as well. And Roy Connolly loved the thing so much. Like I said, you push the button and it goes, clang, 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 and it lights up and goes, and he, and he just thought it was so cool that they ended up keeping it around the production offices and it landed in the storyboard room. So every time they had story pitch sessions, they would use this sword to kind of point. So we go to this board, he goes here, he goes here, he goes here. And then the guys who were working up there, I, I would know the assistants, the executives, would say, yeah, I, I hear Roy in there. And when somebody's not paying attention to a meeting, he swings the sword at them and you're going to go, you, <laughs> zang, bang, bang. And so that little sword was used as the production pointer for the entirety <laughs> of Treasure Planet. That is a unique story. So you <laughs> couldn't have had the movie without it? <laughs> it's an integral for, part. For better or for worse, that <laughs> sword is responsible for Treasure Planet. <laughs> Love Treasure Planet. <laughs> and so does everybody. Yeah, it was your rap party was, gift. For <laughs> hey, Comic-Con, when Ron and John came up, they were... I can see by all your Treasure Planet collectibles you have. Unfortunately, I was laid off before the film with movie was released, oh. so I didn't get a rap party gift. But it was cool to see Ron and John. They were talking about somebody, okay. somebody mentioned Treasure Planet, and the whole audience just cheered. And they were like, thank you, thank you. That was, that was just, we thought, uh, you know, they, it seemed like it would open soft on the first weekend, and so Disney, like, like, didn't give it any more marketing push through the holidays after that. It was... And they, it kind of like it was a big box office bomb at the time. And 
and and they sort of wrote off a bunch of other losses on it, and it was really sad. I felt like they kind of scapegoated the film a little bit yeah. at the time, but but over over the years and over video, the kids who finally find it really find something that's got uh, a great heart and is just mm-hmm. a super spectacular Star Wars type. Uh, adventure so don't be knocking my (laughs) treasure planet disney would then put the pirates back in the water and make billions and by the way notice again they they kind of yeah exactly they 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 still were skewing away from sci-fi action (laughs) superhero stuff so so to sell a science fiction movie they had to dress it up as well disney's first live action movie was treasure island so Mm. we'll redo treasure island in outer space and make a treasure planet and I thought they did a really, really good job with that. It's, and the cyborg and the, the way they, they integrated the 3D uh, like arm with the traditionally animated character. And it's, yeah, yeah it's, I, I have no it's idea. It's a cool film. It really is, no. Yeah. It's cool. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for joining me on the inaugural episode of The Right Stuff. Until next time, I'm Caleb. And I'm Kent. Yay! Collect some stuff.